Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. So now you got to try to find a phone because I got to turn my story in. And either nobody has a phone or nobody wants to let me use the phone. Because here comes a dude in Jordans <laughs> with like this 84 Dell talking about, hey, yo, man, can I use your phone line? I got to turn my story in. So the one place that was open was the porn shop on Broadway. <laughs> and then I contrast that with now, right, where... I literally write stories from my iPhone while I'm driving. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. This week at Life of the Law, we're presenting stories from some courageous and outrageous people living with tech in the Bay Area. People who are pushing back against the tidal wave of tech progress and change. Some change good, some not so good. Live Law IPO in San Francisco's Mission District presents stories by Fantastic Negrito, Marcus Thompson, Irene Tu, Riddy Shaw, Troy Williams, and Saran Norris. We'll let our host for the night, tech startup entrepreneur and Life of the Law advisory board member, Jessica McKellar, introduce you. Now, Live Law IPO. Welcome everyone to Live Law Initial Public Offering. My name is Jessica and I'll be your MC for this night of incredible storytelling. This is a production of Life of the Law, which is a San Francisco-based nonprofit dedicated to storytelling and journalism about the law and how it impacts our lives. Yes. <laughs> to get us in the spirit, in the mood for this event, I wanna tell a very short story. So a few weeks ago, I was at a church service in Berkeley with a friend of mine named Matt. Uh, and at the beginning of the service, the pastor had an urgent update for the congregation. Uh, and that update was that one of the congregation members had been detained by ICE. And uh, he wanted to relay this information to call us to action. You know, step number one was to pray, and steps two through four were about engaging with our elected officials and getting ourselves out and organized to bring these young men back home to his families. And at the end of that announcement, the pastor said a trenchant reminder for us. He said, we are not here to serve the laws, the laws are here to serve us. And I've been thinking about that phrase quite a bit. And furthermore, I'm a technologist. You know, I'm trained as a software engineer. I run a tech company. Um, and I think a lot about how technology intersects with the law to affect our lives. Because we know and we see every day that technology can facilitate both equity and injustice. It can facilitate oppression. It can facilitate resistance. It can bring us sadness, and it can bring us joy. So tonight, we bring together six stories about technology and the law, both our formal laws as well as the informal rules that govern our daily interactions. And with that, I don't want to stand between us and our storytellers, so I'd like to first bring to the stage Irene Tu. Irene is a Chicago-born, San Francisco-based stand-up comedian, actor, and writer. In 2017, the San Francisco Chronicle singled her out as an artist on the brink of fame, on the heels of being named as one of the Bay Area's 11 best stand-up comedians and one of 20 women to watch. She has performed at SF Sketchfest, Bridgetown Comedy Festival, Riot LA, and her comedy was featured on CISO and Viceland. Quite the roster. Irene, 
please come join me on stage. Thank you. Hello. Uh, I'm not Kathy, in case you thought that I might be Kathy. Uh, we look similar, and we have the same last name. I'm going to move this. Uh, but she couldn't make it, so then they asked uh, the other person who has the exact same last name as her, so it's me. Uh, and normally I do stand up, so I'm going to tell a story that I had like literally two days to think about writing, so it might be a little rough, but uh, I'm going to share it with you. So uh, when they told me the theme was about uh, living with technology and law, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to tell. I was like, well, I'm a comedian. I don't really do a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, so I was like, oh, what am I going to say? And the, and the only thing that's really been on my mind recently is my girlfriend and I broke up sort of recently, and I was like, well, let me think of I can think of a story related to that, also related with technology and law. So this <laughs> is the story that I thought of. So uh, I, uh, I live in South Berkeley, and I've been living there for about three years now. Uh, I moved uh, to my current apartment after I graduated from UC Berkeley. And when I first moved in... Um, uh, the very first day I moved into my apartment, my girlfriend and I at the time, different girlfriend, uh, we, we walked up uh, to the apartment and we were loading all our stuff in and then we go back to the car and my neighbor in the back, uh, the first thing she says is, uh, hey, uh, welcome to the neighborhood. Also, your upstairs neighbor might try to rob you. Um, <laughs> And I was like, oh, cool, welcome home, home sweet home. Everyone loves hearing that, right? The first day they move in, you're like, oh, you might get robbed too. I'm like, great. Uh, luckily, that didn't end up happening. But in the world, used to be like plenty of spots to park on my street, right? And then two years later, still in that same apartment, my back uh, neighbors, they moved out. It used to be a, a lesbian couple that had a truck, typical. Um, <laughs> and now it's like these guys I actually went to college with and there's like no parking on my street anymore. I'm like, oh, I feel like this is clearly, like this is clearly gentrification, right? Like there's no parking on my street. And like these dudes that live behind me went to school with me. So that was pretty crazy. Uh, <laughs> and around that same time, so I broke up with that girlfriend and then I had a different on again, off again girlfriend that um, probably shouldn't have dated, but it's fine. Uh, <laughs> But she dropped me off uh, a few blocks from my house one time on her way to work. And I got out of the car. I'm like, I have my backpack on, uh, put my headphones in, listening to Sam Smith as usual. Uh, just, just walking down the street. It's like 9 in the morning. I walk by the park. It's like pretty nice out. It's sunny. I'm feeling good about myself. And then I walk past this kid, and he's just like staring at the ground. I was like, okay, whatever. So I'm like walking by him. And then suddenly... Uh, I just see him like whip around and I see an elbow just in slow motion but very quickly uh, hitting my ear. So he elbowed me in the head uh, and I'm just like falling on the ground. My glasses fall off my face, go on the floor so I can barely see anything that's happening right now. I'm like, oh, I'm getting jumped. Cool. <laughs> That's like the thought that's running through my head as I'm falling down. I land on my butt, and uh, I actually had like electronics on me. I don't know if he knew that, like, or if he just thought I was a techie because I dress kind of like a techie. I would like to say I dress like a lesbian, and then techies stole our outfit. Like that's <laughs> really what it is. Okay, like I am a comedian and a starving artist. I just look like I have money, but I don't. Okay. 
So I think that's why he picked on me. Uh, so I'm like falling and I'm like, oh my God, I had like two thoughts in my head. Cause he actually had another friend that started running up and they both were like beating me up, trying to take my stuff. And I had two thoughts running through my head, right? The first was like, oh my God, I'm gonna die and nobody's gonna know. And the second thought was, oh, I never backed up my computer today. <laughs> Or my phone, uh, probably should have done that. Like those were the two things that worked. I was like, oh, I might die, but oh, all my photos are gonna be gone. Like that was also equally important to me, which is crazy. Like that wouldn't have happened like 10 or 20 years ago. But like now I'm like, I need the stuff. Even if I'm on my deathbed, I'm like, I need the photos. Uh, <laughs> so they keep beating me up and I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to buy a new laptop. <laughs> Uh, which hospital's closest to me. Uh, I don't remember my mom's phone number. Uh, and then my phone also fell out of my pocket. I'm like, okay, I gotta make sure they don't steal my phone. And, cause it's like a fight or flight situation, right? When someone's beating you, you can like either give them your stuff and run away, or you can just like fight. And I, I'm like real, like you can see my arms that are kind of wimpy, right? Uh, but my go-to in any moment is fight, even though I don't, I can't really physically fight, so I'm just like doing like this and like kicking and flailing my arms about and, and I just yelling. I'm like, help, help. And I'm just like, I'm like swimming on the ground. Very useless. I'm just yelling help. Uh, and, and then I, I don't, I'm not very religious, right? So in that moment, I was like, oh my God, if God, if you are real, please save me. Uh, I am so sorry uh, if I <laughs> didn't believe you before. I just really don't want to die. Uh, and then after they keep beating me up for a while and I'm yelling, and then suddenly I see this guy walking up. I'm like laying on the ground with this, this tall, six foot tall uh, black man with a big white fluffy dog walks up. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get beat up by a third person. <laughs> and a dog. This is like even worse now. That's not what I asked for. Uh, but he's like, what's going on here? And the two kids uh, look, at a, look up at it. He's six feet tall. Okay, the, the guy is huge. And they're both like 14. So they're like, uh, I don't know. Because I guess he thought they were just like playing around. And I was like, yeah, they're, they're punching me. This is not fun. Uh, and then the two kids were like, oh, he's bigger than us. We're going to run away. So they ran away. Uh, and then the guy with the dog was just standing there. I was like, oh my God, I just got saved by this guy with the dog. And I was like, thank you. Uh, and then I got up and we started walking away and we were talking and he was like, oh, like, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a comedian. Um, and I graduated from Berkeley and I majored in ethnic studies. And he's like, oh, cool. Like I'm actually going to grad school for ethnic studies. I was like, okay, cool. That's very random that we both have that in common. Uh, and then he was also like, oh, um, and I used to play basketball. I'm like, uh, yeah, of course you played basketball. You're like six feet tall. There's no way you didn't play basketball. He was like, yeah, I was in the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, and I was like, what? <laughs> You're, you were in the Harlem Globetrotters? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, I didn't know they were woke like that, but okay, sure. <laughs> and then he was like, okay, yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, my name's Irene. He's like, oh, I'm Moses. Uh, and I was like, Okay, interesting. Uh, and I'm not sure what the moral of that story is exactly, right? Like, I don't know if it's like that technology like keeps widening the, widening the gap between the rich and the poor. I don't know if it's because, I don't know if it's like I should just change my style so I don't get beat up. Uh, I don't know, like, if 
And like afterwards, I didn't know if I would like should report it because I'm like, I don't want to tell the police because then they're always like, oh, can you describe the people? And I was like, well, I don't want to say that they're black because I don't want you to like just round them some random kids. And I'm like, I can't identify them anyways because I was not having my glasses on. So I'm like, that seems pointless. Uh, I don't know if it was that I'm like a very scrappy fighter and I've been jumped twice. They've never stolen anything. So don't beat me up. You know what I mean? Uh, but I think what really the moral of the story is, is that um, I got saved by an ex-Harlem Globetrotter named Moses, and I'm pretty sure that's a sign that God is real and Jesus is black. Like, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Uh, thank you guys so much. I'm Irene, too. Have a great night. Thank you. Next up, um, if you've spent any time in San Francisco, you have seen Saran's work. Uh, the big bear murals that you see all over the city are, are the fantastic work of Saran Norris, who is an artist and an educator, um, creator of some of San Francisco's most iconic murals that are, are real commentaries on how the city has changed over the past decades. Uh, and he's also the lead artist on Bob's Burgers. So, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> so, Saran, come out here. Yeah. Hello. Uh, thank you for coming out tonight. Um, uh, let me start out by prefacing this whole thing. Uh, I am talking about uh, uh, the law, um, so I did actually have to uh, uh, talk to my lawyer before I actually showed up here. So just to connect with the audience, if anybody paid to come here, I literally paid to come here too. Um, my lawyer doesn't do anything for free, so I had to uh, 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 go over some of this stuff with her so I knew what I was saying was, uh, was correct and legal. Um, so my name's Saran Norris, I'm an artist here in San Francisco, I'm a muralist, um, and I think that's what I wanna talk about. I wanna talk about what a muralist is and, and what it is to be a public artist. Um, I create this, these murals and they're all around the Mission District and they're there 24 hours a day, people can see them all the time. And what's interesting about that is, is uh, my intentions are not always honored. Sometimes I put these ideas out there and sometimes people take them in a total another direction. So much so um, that it's crossed the line. And it's crossed the line to the point where I've had to sue people, companies. Um, so much so that for the past three years, I've had to sue a different company every year. So I'm gonna start out with talking about 2015. Now, the streets that everybody walked in to get here in the Mission District has been ravaged by gentrification. Gentrification is a cliche in the Mission District because it wouldn't be called the Mission if it wasn't gentrified to begin with. Um, uh, in terms of gentrification affecting me, I've relatively come out unscathed, but that doesn't mean that I'm not an advocate for fighting against it. Uh, if anybody sees any of my murals in the city, especially in the Mission District, they always have a voice, and they usually always talk about gentrification. They usually always talk about the plight of the Mission District. The first time that gentrification actually affected me was when this calendar from this real estate company here in San Francisco showed up on my doorstep. This calendar was filled with 12 months like calendars usually are, but 
this one particular month, which was February, my birthday month actually, I don't know how they knew, but they had a multi-million dollar house next to one of my murals that was in the vicinity of that house. Now, some of you might not know, but one of my most well-known murals in the Mission District is called Victorian Defender de la Mission. It's about six Victorian houses coming together to create a giant robot that then steps on developers. So needless to say, being part of this calendar was bad for my brand. <laughs> I called up the real estate company and I said, what is going on here? And the first thing that they said to me was, they gave me credit and that this calendar was going to people that had the money to buy a multi-million dollar house and that this was something that I should be happy about. So I hung up on them and I called my lawyer. Uh, what we did was, we gathered all those 12 artists, all those muralists, all those muralists that created work about the community, all those artists that created work that had nothing to do with selling a multi-million dollar house, and we got together and we did a class action lawsuit. Now, they messed around with us for a good year. They said that they didn't sell those calendars, and so we shouldn't be able to get anything from that. But you know, people hated this real estate company so much, especially rival real estate companies, that they actually reached out to us. <laughs> and they told us that they actually sold them to the real estate agents, that then they gave out to whoever they wanted to. So, needs to say, we went into arbitration. So I was sitting there negotiating with 12 other artists against this real estate company, insurance company, if anybody's ever negotiated with 12 artists before, it's really hard. <laughs> it's like wrangling cats, but we did it. And we settled. And I walked out of there with two lessons. Uh, the first lesson is, is that if someone sees a mural that's out of context, well, they're just not gonna get my ideology. They're just not gonna get my mission statement. This is not gonna happen. Second thing is, is copyright everything. See, if you copyright something that, or if you, if you sue somebody and you don't fully own the copyright registered with the Library of Congress, 10 to 1 in terms of how much money you can get. This particular mural that got taken over by this real estate company was in a neighborhood that back in the day I didn't think was relevant. But because tech has just taken over San Francisco, every neighborhood in the city is relevant now. Lesson, copyright everything. 2016. There's these websites that are around. These websites host your photos, and those photos are for sale. This particular website was hosting photos for sale. Those photos were like, if someone went up to one of my murals, and they took a picture of one of my murals, but they grabbed a little bit of the sidewalk, a little bit of the street, claiming it as their own. Now, the thing with that is, is... The reality of the situation is, is that we're all photographers. We all have phones in our pocket. The reality of the situation is that it's distribution over content. Distribution is way more important than content. The viewer is way more important than the subject. So my thing is that all of a sudden they took my work and they reduced it down to a JPEG, clip art. I scout through that site. 
I found 10 violations. We sued. Copyright everything. The thing is, is my problem is sometimes as a muralist, we do murals that are ephemeral, murals that are just there for the moment, murals that we just do to just say a statement and then the politics pass through and we erase it and start again. Man, I failed. Those are the last ones that I was going to copyright. Copyright everything, I failed. I'll walk away with the lesson of, man, I need to make sure I copyright everything, but I'm going to walk away with the lesson that, you know what, they're just not going to see my detail. They're not going to see my clean lines. They're not going to see my strokes. It's fine. 2017. What's interesting about 2017 is, is what I'm about to talk about right now actually happened a year ago today. I don't know how that happened. We're just lucky. But it happened a year ago today. A year ago today, a mural that I created was whitewashed, erased. So last year, 2016, I redid one of my murals that had been there for almost 20 years. I redid it with this new mural called The Disruption. It's on the corner of Bryan 20th Street. That mural I had for 20 years across the street on Bryan 20th Street, on the Bryan Street side, I had this big blue bear head. This big blue bear head was there for almost 20 years. I got hit so many times with graffiti, and I maintained it for 20 years. This mural was almost grandfathered into this particular location. This building got sold, and it moved to another owner. This mural was so trashed that when I painted the disruption on Bryan 20th Street, I thought I'd give this, this new mural a facelift. Now, of course, everybody, you, she, the intro just talked about Bob's Burgers, you know. A lot of people don't know this, but Lauren Bouchard, the creator of Bob's Burgers, lives right down the street on Bryan 20th. In fact, the restaurant, the restaurant that we, that's in the show is actually his house right on Bryan 20th Street. He went to the corner store. That's how he actually saw my work and called me up to be in the show. The corner store is where all my murals are. Jay Howe, who designed the characters, worked at Atlas Cafe. We designed the whole first episode on the corner of 16th and Harrison. So what I wanted to do was memorialize that show. Memorialize, let people know that there's history. See, that's one of the most important things murals can do, is they can talk about history. They can talk about this point in, in our lives. It shows people what's going on in this neighborhood. It teaches people things. That's one of the most powerful things I think murals can do. And so I thought it was really important to do this. I erased that mural with that blue bear and I put Bob and Linda up there in a really great embrace. Totally stole it from the show. But I, of course, helped create those characters. Didn't think anything of it. The owner of the, uh, the restaurant which that mural was on told me the day before he was about to take that mural down. He says, I'm going to take that mural down because it violates copyrights and I don't want to get sued by Fox. I said, dude, that's not going to be a good idea. I don't think you should do that. <laughs> See, that mural was grandfathered in, so I should at least, at the very least, get 90 days to get my affairs in order before they take that mural away. I found out on Broke Ass Stewart's website that they whitewashed it. Found out on Twitter, the next day, erased it. So, I sued him. Now, I finally got myself in a situation. For the past two years, 
I've been fighting all these people that have been stealing my work, that have been taking my copyright. And now, I found myself in a situation to where the only way I was going to be successful in this lawsuit was to actually go and get my copyright back. I had to go back to Fox. I went back to Lauren Bouchard, the creator of the show. There was only four of us that created that show. It was the most amazing working experience ever. I've never ever had a boss that was that cool. Every time I'd get an email from anyone in that show, I would laugh. Even when they were telling me to do something, I would laugh. It was the best working experience ever. So my relationship with Lauren Bouchard, needless to say, is wonderful. I emailed him up and I said, this is the situation. And he said, I'm going to take care of it. Fox lawyers called me up and we put together a contract stating that I can paint Bob and Linda wherever I want. I took that back to this lawsuit that I was currently in and they settled. I had to walk away from that lesson saying, well, hey, they're never going to respect the history that we put into these murals. They're never going to respect the memories and the lessons that we put into these murals. But what's different about this one is, is that when they start to erase our history, it starts to affect more than just me. It starts to affect my community and the people around me. So I talked to you about these three instances where I felt that my hard work did not get respected. No, sometimes they did not respect my ideology, my mission statement. No, sometimes they do not see the detail and the hard work that I put and the rendering that I put into my work. Sometimes they don't respect the history of the community. But, hey, the reality is, especially as an artist, is that you have to give all that stuff to yourself. Self-love is the most important thing that you can do as an artist. You have to know your ideology. You have to know how hard you work on your stuff. All that stuff is important that you have to give to yourself. I don't need anybody to give me that stuff. But if we ever find ourselves in situations where we do need to gain that value, we do have one thing, and that's the law. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, Troy Williams. Troy is a founder of the San Quentin Prison Report and a founder of the Restorative Media Project. He is also a RISE coordinator at Chabot College. RISE assists formerly incarcerated and systems impacted individuals in attaining their educational goals. Please welcome to the stage, Troy Williams. So I told Marvin Munch I was going to give him a shout out when I got up here. What's up, Marv? <laughs> In the um, spirit of Marv, I'm up here to be a rebel rouser for a minute. Um, as you heard, my name is Troy Williams. I'm a journalist, and I'm also a voice for those yet to be heard. The law. Three years ago, I was serving a life sentence. I'm still on parole. So there's the law. I started a program up when I was inside called the San Quentin Prison Report. 
for years. I spent 10 years walking prison yards, dreaming about being a filmmaker, dreaming about having a voice. I watched show after show on television demean who I was and demean the image of who my people were. See, as a young man, the only thing they um, told me about myself in school was that you was a slave. Martin Luther King had a dream. Malcolm X was radical. And Harriet Tubman had an underground railroad. That's the extent of my history. It took me actually going to a prison yard and one of the older brothers on the prison yard coming up to me, giving me a pile of books, literally this high off the ground, that spoke about the richness of my history. And when I started reading those books, it brought to memory my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother, she was the matriarch of our family. She was the griot of our family. In Western Africa, the griot is the one who is the holder of stories for the family. They transmit stories. They're the ambassadors. They're the musicians. They're the people that hold the memories of who you are. I remember my grandmother because some of the things she would say, it gave me the ability to think critically at a young age. She was the first one who introduced to me the concept of what race and racism was. She was 100 years old, two weeks before her 100th birthday before she passed away. This was in 1978, so you can imagine what she saw over her lifetime. She sat down with me and she would say, Baby, <laughs> you catch more bees with honey, but you still got to be careful because bears like honey too. <laughs> and it's not just what she said, but it's how she said it. She said it with this deep place of conviction. And I remember every time I sat with her, I felt heard and I felt complete. And then one day my grandmother was gone. That left this big void. This void was in my life because um, my parents, I didn't understand the concept of my mother having to work all kind of odd hours and my father working sun up to sundown. Um, and speaking of them, I want to give them a big shout out and a big I love you. They've been married 55 years. Yeah. So they taught me a little bit of something. Even though in my younger years, I didn't know how to appreciate it. In those younger years, I went searching for love in the form of street gangs. And that led me to the penitentiary. I remember one of the movies that I saw that really had me wanting to write 
and tell my own story was the movie Colors. They gave all of these really bad and demonic reasons as to why people join gangs, but I never fit any of those stereotypes. That wasn't my truth. That wasn't our truth. See, the truth of the matter is that I didn't consider myself any different than what an American soldier saw itself. If you come bomb my Twin Towers, guess what? I'm gonna bomb your Twin Towers. I thought I saw myself as a defender of my community. However wrong my actions may have been in that. But let me fast forward. I remember walking onto the yard at San Quentin and realizing that there was video equipment on the yard. In 2007, Discovery Channel came in with Radical Media and they took nine of us through this video production course. During that course, I filmed the movie called Absence. Absence was about the effect of the absence of a father from his child's life. So I talked about how my father's emotional absence affected me and how my physical absence in turn affected my children. I found my voice. I found something that gave me the ability to reach out to the people that needed to hear that voice. And I petitioned the warden after Discovery Channel left, they left us all of this equipment. I petitioned the warden for us to be allowed to continue running around the prison with camera equipment. Now, if you can imagine, that didn't really go off too well with a lot of prison guards. Who are you to think that you can run around here with video cameras and what are you trying to video? It also didn't go well with a lot of guys on the inside because the, mant the mantra is, you don't know my name, you only know my face. On the Ferrilla, call me Scarface. For those of you who know, you know what I'm talking about. So guys really didn't want to be filmed either. So it took a lot of convincing for us to start um, to convince people to want to share their stories. But we did. We started filming people's stories and then I wanted to other people to feel that. I wanted what we had to be bigger than me. I wanted us to be able to reach back to our communities and stop our young people from heading that way. So the whole goal was to build a program up that allowed us to reach to the outside world and speak to our community. And that's what we started doing. We created a partnership with KLW. At the time, Holly Kerning was there. And um, I shout out to Ben, he's in the audience now. Um, and we created this program that allowed our voices to leave the prison. We put up a website, and this website allowed people to go and really see the good work that we were doing. It allowed us to change the image of what the outside world viewed us as. And we were in control of our image. See, because typically when people came into the prison, they came in with their video cameras or their recording equipment, 
they did this production and then they left and we found ourselves at the whim of whatever interpretation that they decided to give to our story. See, many journalists would tell you that you have to be objective in your journalistic approach. And I'm telling you that there's no such thing. We all enter everything that we write from our perspective, right? You have your history, you have where you came from, and that's what you use when you write, when you view, when you talk, when you hear, when you listen, you don't lose all of your background to some concept of objectivity. It's there, implicit bias is there automatically. So we started telling our stories. We started getting these stories out and um, I parole. I came to the outside world to start my life over. Now the interesting thing about that is that I paroled with, literally with $200 in my pocket. This is what they give you. I had spent 18 years in the prison system that spent 65,000 or more dollars a year to keep me in prison. And when I left, they said, here's $200, good luck, right? But for family and friends and support, um, my story may have been very different. Um, I wanted the program that I started to continue. I wanted that, those voices to continue reaching to the outside world. But the thing about those programs is that they can't continue unless they have volunteers and they have support. Even myself, when I was in, there was things that we could not do. We could not get on the web. We had to have volunteers for that. We could not even transfer. Once we produced the audio or produced whatever it was that we um, um, had put together, that had to go into the hands of a volunteer. And there are a lot of good volunteers. There are a lot of people that walk inside the prison and they donate their time and their effort with sometimes little or no compensation to do what it is that they do. And so I want to say that what I'm about to say is not for those volunteers. I love you and I respect the ones who actually helped me along the way. And then there are some volunteers that take advantage. They make money off of us. They make a lot of money off of us. The show that I started was taken. It was taken and it was put into the hands of someone who wanted to be the voice of black men in prison. And you see, I have a problem with this. Because the message that was once designed to reach our community is now headed to a community that doesn't need to hear that voice. The message that was designed to reach people who needed to hear and know that men like Troy that men like the countless other lifers, like Marvin, like, and I can name a bunch of people, Celine, Jamal, 
that are home, Sam, that are home doing good work in the community and good work even still inside a prison. Those messages are not reaching the people that they need to reach. Why? I call it ego. I call it ego. How is it? How is it that someone could take away the voice of people who need to hear it? It's sort of like Columbus discovered America. This is one of the lies I was told in school. This is one of the things that got me in trouble as a young man. I was told the founding fathers of the United States were just and equal. And as a young man, I would ask the question, how so? They were just and equal to whom? My reason for pointing this out is to say that there are very subtle things that happen to people of color, to black people in this country, that if we don't stop and take a look at, that we will continue to create harm, and that harm will continue to create harm in other areas. Are people hearing what I'm saying? So many of us need to be heard. We need a voice. Our community needs to see the examples that comes from us to our community. See, the, the, the griot didn't go in somebody else's community to tell their story. He went to his own community or her own community and told their stories to their community. They held the truth because there's a certain fire that you speak with when you talk about what you talk about with your community. When my grandmother talked to me about race and racism, she never had to downplay anybody else. She literally spoke to me her truth and that has lasted with me to this day. She is the only woman on the face of this planet that was the only person on the face of this planet that was able to scold me and make me feel so loved at the same time. There's an art to that. <laughs> and we're losing that art. We're losing the ability to speak to our young people because we're creating markets and an economy off of the lives of people who are the most marginalized and disenfranchised and underrepresented people in this country. And it has to stop. In closing, I'll say that I wish I wish that things were different in this country. But I believe they can be. I believe that it takes each of us to face 
what it is that we have to face for us to change. And I say that from experience. In order for me to get out of prison, I had to walk into a boardroom and I had to own up to the things that I did. And I couldn't just go in and talk about it. It had to come from a place where they knew where they could feel comfortable with releasing me. See, because I'm a bad guy. I'll say was a bad guy. Let me use that past tense. I'm a good guy now. <laughs> but I had to go in there and I had to own up to what I did. I had to show some insight into how I got to the point where I could do what I did. And then I had to have a plan established and ready to show that I had an idea at least where I was going with my future. And I think that's what we have to do as a people in this country. We have to own up to the racism that is in this country. We have to own up to what I have coined as the carceral exploitation of people in this country. We have to take ownership of that. We have to accept responsibility for what has happened and we have to move forward in a way that allows all of us to move forward. We use this colorful word to describe it and we call it privilege. And I'm, I argue that it's not a privilege, it's a pathology. People say, what can we do to help? What can we do? Let's go find some poor people and some disadvantaged people and go work with them. And everybody wants to go there. And I tell people, allow us the resources so that we can work with our own communities. What I need the rest of the people to do is to go back and work in your communities and talk to your racist cousin, Uncle Bob, and tell him to get his foot off my neck. People want to come and they want to say to me, this is how you deal with the pressure of racism and the pressure of foot on your neck. You walk straight, you keep 10 and 2, you keep your hand on the wheel, and you be very safe and cautious when you come into a police officer. And I'm saying, no, let's go fix the system that is broken. Thank you. Thank you, Troy. Next up, Rudy Shaw is a digital storyteller with companies like Medium and the Huffington Post. Before coming to the United States, she reported on social justice issues in India. Rudy? So I grew up in Bombay in India. Um, where my father was and still is a successful businessman. Um, and what that meant is that I grew up in, with a life of wealth and privilege in a country of extreme inequality. 
I, um, I, hung, I went to private school, hung out with other similarly wealthy friends, had someone to drive me around, cook for me, clean for me, wash my dishes, uh, make my bed, you know, you, you get the picture. Very often, wealth is synonymous with power. And in the India that I grew up in, that, that power manifested as a casual disregard for the law. Um, most often, you know, that, that was sort of, uh, that came about in sort of typically teenage ways, right? So um, driving while ridiculously stoned or drunk or, um, uh, you know, speeding down the city's very narrow streets at three in the morning or uh, partying way, way past the city's official uh, cop-enforced curfew. Um, but then there were other more serious infractions too. I had friends, for instance, who um, got into top-tier universities purely uh, on the basis of the amount of money that their parents had donated to that school. I had still others who got entire degrees on the basis of that. And, you know, for us, I think, when I look back now, I realize that what I felt at the time was I felt above the law. We felt like the, the rules didn't really apply to us. Um, we weren't scared of the police or of, of anything bad happening to us. Um, and that sort of sense of being above the law gave me a heightened sense of individuality. I believed that my personhood, my desires mattered more than the next person. We, uh, you know, we, money would always bail us out. There was an endless series of second chances. And so if I felt like driving down the street at midnight, I should be able to. Or if I felt like partying till 5 a.m., I should be able to. And then when I was 26, I followed my husband to the United States. That was hard. <laughs> Giving up the privilege, leaving my friends, leaving my family was difficult. My husband and I were poor grad students trying to get, a jo trying to get jobs here after the recession. And there was no safety net, uh, no uncle who knows someone who knows the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Either we made it or we hightailed it back home. No second chances. And yet that experience was oddly freeing. The lack of fallbacks helped me discover reserves of grit that I didn't know I had. I was able to remake my identity without the markers of familial wealth. I had only myself to rely on, and that felt great. And so we built, built careers, moved cities, bought a house, um, had a daughter, and made this our home. When, I, when we moved to San Francisco, I started working for a tech startup, the kind that's founded by a billionaire, the kind where fancy coffee flows on top, uh, flows on tap next to organic kombucha and where you have um, gluten-free snacks and uh, meditation three times a week and yoga classes twice a week and company retreats means, um, mean, you know, meant fancy uh, resorts in Sonoma and Carmel Valley. And I remember sunning myself at one of those fancy resorts. I think it was um, Hot Springs in Sonoma. And I realized that this was the first time in my life, in the US, that my life in the US resembled my life in India. The sense of entitled or entitlement around me was palpable. And then as luck would have it, on the 2nd of January, 2017, when my husband and I were on vacation in India, I got laid off over slack.
um, our billionaire CEO had just changed his mind. He decided that he didn't want to do the thing that he had hired a bunch of us to do. And so 70 of us were out of jobs. Of course, the news, you know, the internet went crazy with the news of the pivot. Um, and when I came back to the US, I was expecting, you know, blowback, criticism. But instead, what I found was that our billionaires, investors, and all of the Silicon Valley elite um, were praising him because he had taken a very difficult decision. And um, they thought that he was uh, pushing the envelope and experimenting. And so we were just cast out, just like that. The fall was particularly hard for me. When I lost my job, I also lost my approved green card. All of a sudden, I hit three months to find a job or I would have to leave the United States um, or stay here without being able to work. We had just, like I said, we had just bought a house, so that second option was, was not appealing. Um, and if you know anyone who's not an engineer here knows that three months is never enough to find a job. So there were countless near misses. Um, there were attempts to revive the green card, try and move me over to a different visa, all of which failed due to a variety of reasons. Take your pick from the Trump administration's new rules to a completely illogical immigration system to just plain dumb luck. The most ridiculous moment of those three months came when I realized that that approved but now no longer usable green card gave my husband the ability to work here and stay in the United States without a visa, but not me. Go figure. Uh, but there were other uh, ridiculous moments as well, like when I realized that my husband had been here in the United States since he was 17 for his entire adult life. He had lived here for 18 years without being able to become a permanent resident. That we had given the United States almost a half a million dollars in taxes, hundreds of thousands of dollars to US educational institutions, that we had bought a house in San Francisco, that I had a daughter who was an American citizen, and yet, to the immigration services, we were just temporary aliens. So much so that each time we came back into the country, we'd have a customs agent at the airport ask us, what brings you to the United States? My husband and I would just look at each other and say, this is home. This is where I found myself. This is the country that let me become who I wanted to be. I ultimately found a part-time role at a friend startup who's here in the audience, so big shout out to him. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, my, my connection sort of uh, it worked for me, and in that I'm luckier than, than most other immigrants you know. And yet it would take USCIS six months to let me know if the visa had been approved. And in those six months, I just became the 10-digit case number that the USCIS had assigned to me. I became a statistic, a stranger in a strange land, a, a series of numbers, a series of forms, an I-97, an I-797, and WAC 76578769727. And if in, in India I had a heightened sense of individuality, here I was completely without identity, just a series of numbers. And if in India, the wrong things, wealth, power, status, mattered too much, here the right things, hard work, productivity, uh, honesty, mattered too little. I'll be honest, there were times that we considered leaving, either going back in to India or moving to a third country altogether. But I think ultimately we were just too stubborn. 
I refused to believe that the country that had once welcomed me and and um, given me so much, all of a sudden just didn't want me. And so we stayed. At this point, I'm fairly certain that things will work out. We're, we're back on track. The visa came through. Um, we're back on track for the green card. But if there was one thing that that experience taught me, it, it was that um, what the law recognizes as a few facts um, that have basically been decided upon by a bunch of men in a, a room completely disconnected from reality um, is, not, is, is far from the truth. The law picks the facts that it thinks it matters, but leaves out everything else. In my case, it deemed that I was a deportable alien if I hadn't found a job after being laid off for, uh, in three months. But it left out the fact that my husband had been here his entire life, that we had a daughter who, was, who, who belonged here, that we had built our lives here, that this was home. And so I'll just leave you with this. The next time that you see an immigrant being deported uh, because of a, uh, on TV because of a minor infraction, like they, you know, uh, they didn't pay for a parking ticket like 10 years ago, or they didn't show up for uh, one of their appointments with a judge. Just remember that what you see is um, just a small, small sliver of the fact. There are so many details that haven't come that, that haven't been accounted for. And these are the details that humanize us, that make us complex. And these are the, the details that make us as real as you. Thank you. Our next speaker, Fantastic Negrito, is a Grammy-winning artist, bringing us blues with a punk attitude from Oakland. I assure you that his life and story defy summarization, so I will not try to, and I will let him speak for himself. Fantastic Negrito, come on out here. Hello. Why did I wear a red shirt? <laughs> so yeah, I'm uh, going to say about myself, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a recovering narcissist. And I like, no, it's real, it's real, it's real. In the business that I'm in, a lot of people are recovering from drugs, but for me, I always thought it was narcissism. Um, the law. Well, I have a lot of feelings about the law. It was something that I used to break a lot as a youngster growing up in the Bay Area. But I also, when I was sitting over there listening to these uh, incredible speakers today, I thought, man, the law. One law at a time. That's how things get done. That's how things happen in Nazi Germany. One law at a time. Um, slavery was one law at a time. But the law helped me a lot when I, because I moved away from uh, the Bay Area. I was down in LA. And when I heard that you could uh, have 100 plants, I moved back. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm, and I, I actually, I quit music. I just was burned out. I was like, I don't do music. So I would just rent a bunch of houses, a bunch of commercial um, buildings, 
This is when you could get 4,000 a pound for herb, and I'm talking about at the dispensary. I'm not talking about on the streets. So this was about eight years ago. But I decided that the law was working in my favor for a change. So I sold all my musical equipment. I uh, got married. I don't talk about that publicly that much. And I wanted to marry another chick. I was like, man, it's like polygamy and like farming and growing weed. I just, uh, <laughs> I failed at polygamy though. <laughs> didn't work. I tried it. It didn't work. But um, so I thought, you know what? I thought I called up like my, my artists, homies, writers, painters. I said, man, who has some money? No one. I had the money. So I said, the law is working in our favor now. So I called the most talented guy that I know, amazing writer, and it's the reason why Fantastic Negrito exists. And I said, listen, man, you write. You're broke right now. You're not very hot right now, as they say in LA. And I said, I'll grow all this weed. Had this farm, I had my chickens, wake up in the morning getting eggs. It was amazing, I loved it. Vegetables and shit, but then a lot of weed. Because I didn't, you know, I didn't know what to tell my neighbors and shit. I was like, like what do you do? And I was like, I'm a farmer. <laughs> and uh, they'd come over to the house and they'd be like, man, the, fl the floor is vibrating. Because does anybody grow, anybody growers here? No? What kind of barrier people are, oh, it's gentrified. It's gentrified. Y'all ain't real. <laughs> so anyway, listen though. So I was like, I was like, they're like, why is it? The floor vibrating, and I just look at him. I was like, I, I fix uh, air conditioners. It's <laughs> just going along. I was going along. So anyway, let's, let's get back on track here. So I said, listen, I'm going to send you money every time there's a harvest. Just keep writing. Like, we're going to, this is un-American what we're doing. I don't even want it back. I just want, I need you to be successful to keep the dream going. So we didn't really know what we're doing. We're not really that smart, like intellectually or academically and all that shit. He dropped out of high school. I didn't pay attention in high school. So uh, time was passing, time was passing. I kept giving him half the money. And then uh, one day he calls me up and he goes, hey, you can have the whole grow operation. I don't need the money anymore. I was like, why? He's like, shrug, you know, I didn't see him shrug his shoulders, but it felt like that on the phone. He's like, he was like, he was like, man, you know, this show, man, I finally got this show. It's probably going to be whack, man. It sounds stupid. Terrence Howard's in it. He did say that. So I won't say his name, but he said it. He said, it's called Empire. So I was like, yeah, that sounds stupid. It's a true story about the law. We're talking about the law. We did it by the law. So what you do, uh, I'll tell you real quick how you, how you get around the law there. You get five people, and you get that slip of paper when you grow that says you can have 100 plants. So I would have five people, so I'd have 500 plants in each house. That makes a lot of money. You guys ain't interested. But um, <laughs> so anyway, so then uh, Empire becomes this huge, like the number one movement. He's raking in money. He's got his money. He's grateful to me. And then he goes, hey, man, you know what? I think it's your turn. I said, my turn? He said, your, yes, your turn, man. You got to start doing something. I want you to be a musician again. I was like, oh, hell no. I, don't, I have no interest in it. 
I have nothing to say. I'm middle-aged. Who, I, what do I, who cares about what I have to say? I can never be a pop star. I don't even have the moves. <laughs> and so he goes, no, he just kept talking to me. And he kept talking. So what I didn't know is that we were in a collective. I didn't know that it was, it was a collective, like with money. So uh, he, was, he said, hey, man, you got to become an artist again, and I'm going to help you. So I said, he said, what do you love? I said, man, I like, like Delta blues. That's what I love. Nobody wants to hear that shit. He's like, just, just go for it. Just do like your version of it. So he's just like how I supported him in this gentrified uh, Bay Area that seems out of reach. See, it's not always out of reach. You just gotta, you gotta think about it. We shared our money, basically, the most uh, you know, loving thing you could do. <laughs> is uh, help somebody um, make their dream come true. So anyway, I said, I got it. He goes, what is it? Fantastic Negrito. He said, I love it. I love it. And then, and then he goes, he goes, well, start writing some music now. So I was writing all this music. And I told these uh, young, like, hip people in, in, the, in, the, in the art gallery, I said, hey, I got it. I know who I am now. And they're all like, like, fantastic Negrito. And they're like, boo. It's like, that's terrible. I remember this young white kid named Jack. He jumps up. He goes, Xavier, don't you understand that white people, we don't like saying the word Negrito. It makes us feel <laughs> serious. He said, it makes, us, it makes us feel uncomfortable. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, well, that's perfect then. And, uh, this, is all, this all really happened to him. Not make, so this girl, this girl, this, um, she's like a Chinese-American girl, was very interesting, man. She, she had some one-liners. She like, who, if you don't know our logo, she did like this on a, the lunch bag. And they were all laughing. You mean like this? And the whole room was laughing. And I said, I'll buy that for 300 bucks. And she was like, well, just don't tell anybody that I did it. So a Grammy Award later, it's like, this is how it works, you know? And so anyway, that record, that's, that's kind of my story of the law. So let's talk about gentrification. <laughs> well, that's a big word, like gentrific, gentrified chicken. I don't know, gentr gentrification. It's like uh, the first time I ever knew what that was, and it was happening, I didn't really know what it was, but it was happening. And I was a little boy, and I was in Oakland, and I was bad. You would have been scared I was bad. I ran with bad kids. So one, guy, one day, this old Italian man, he's like, his name was Menicotti or something like that. Maybe I'm not saying it right. And we all laughed at him, and he had a big head. And he says, he was just sick of me coming at this causing trouble and writing on the wall and stealing shit. He was like, listen, don't you know that this used to be an Italian neighborhood? And I remember I was so young, and I just, was some, I was like, Italian? Like, what is, what is that shit? <laughs> I had no idea, but that was, it stayed with me like my entire life. So change just happens. And I, you just got to, he was rolling with it, dealing with all of us bad kids. He was just right there. He didn't go anywhere. So I guess it's going to happen. I guess it's happening. Um, I think kind of it is what you want it to be. It is kind of what you want to see every time. I saw it like, this was four years ago. I was like in this era of gentrification. I decided, okay, I'm going to be a middle-aged guy playing on the street. And it worked for me. 
because I thought, uh, man, San Francisco is not the San Francisco I grew up coming over here, partying, stealing cars, going over the bridge, going to the Palladium, going to all these cool spots. I thought, if I can reach these robots and nothing personal, I was like, then, I was like, this is the hardest crowd to play for. You're at the BART station, Mission, Powell, you're playing your heart out, and you see, mm -hmm, coming off this, their job, and if you can penetrate them, if you can get them to reach into their pocket, man, you must be good. Because it's like thawing an iceberg. So, and it was like, it was cool on the way because it's like, it's like, man, you know, we're just, in the end, I was like, I realized, I said it out loud. I'm like, damn, I guess I need people. I hate to, I hated to admit it. I was like, I guess these people are kind of my record company because a record label would look at me and go, man, you're, what, you're 45? That's, get out of here. You want you want to sing a genreless music? What is this music? But I knew. And I was playing for like the people of San Francisco, playing for the people of Oakland. Like no matter who they were, what uh, demographic, how much money they had, they didn't have. The power was in the culture. The power was in the roots. The power was in the music. And in a way, because I'm not that articulate or eloquent, I was even saying to them, and I continue to say that, if you kill culture, and if you kill art, and free thought, and awesomeness, and openness, and uh, a fair shot for people, you really ain't gonna have much of a city. It's gonna be over. The thing that, when we go into uh, a museum, like I was in some museum, and I'm like Paris or somewhere, I'm touring all over the world now, and I was just looking at the stuff there, I'm like, man, we're looking at really old stuff. And this old stuff, this came from, this is stuff people created. Like, that's all that we're interested in. We're, we're not interested in who had the money. We're not interested in who lived in the house on the hill or whatever. We're interested in what did you create? And what did you contribute? You go look at the Egyptians, that's all you're looking at, all this. You're looking at, and all those paintings and artifacts, if you're looking at uh, what the Greeks did, or the Persians, or whoever it was. And so um, I just think we have to be very careful. I like, I like, I like the, I almost called my new album, uh, I keep doing this because I'm obsessed with this. I almost called it uh, Whatever Happened to the Middle Ground because I keep thinking that shit. Like, what the fuck ever happened to the middle ground? Does anybody remember that? When you could like disagree with somebody a little bit, but you weren't so entrenched in your own bullshit or your own ideology that they, just became like an automatic enemy. Like I see that so much online, man. I see that so much in society. It's like, what are we gonna do? As a country, as a people, I, I keep thinking like, um, like who do we wanna be? Who do, who do we see ourselves as? I remember being in Europe in the summer, this past summer, which led me to call my album, Please Don't Be Dead, because the number one thing Europeans would ask me in this freaked out way, they'd be like, what? what's this going on in America? Like that, I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, that was like every accent for every country that I was in. Like, and they looked like perplexed because, but I didn't realize something. I didn't realize that, that um, people, like they view us a certain way. Like I don't view us that way. I look like, man, I can stop by the police, I may get killed. That's how I view us. 
But they view us as, uh, what did Ronald Reagan say? Let me call Ronald Reagan. Shining light on a hill. Some shit. They view us as like a chance, a place where you could, uh, you know, be like a Barack Obama, really the son of a, a, a guy from Kenya, and your middle name's Hussein. But hey, you can be the president. I think for uh, people that are not from here, they look at us in a way that probably we don't understand. They look up to us. And so when I came back, I started working on that album, Please Don't Be Dead, and I thought, please don't be dead liberty. Please don't be dead openness. Please don't be dead love. Please don't be dead the American dream. Please don't be dead the idea that you could come to a place where there's people from so many different backgrounds and all try to be one and all try to live without uh, persecution. So I feel optimistic. I don't know how you guys feel. How do you guys feel about it? Are we going to make it? Now this room feels 50-50. But I think we are. But I think the most important thing, and, and, and it's back to gentrification again, is that, well, if we are going to make it, you're going to need the soldiers. And the soldiers are the artists, the creators of culture, uh, the muralists, the painters, the, the journalists, the storytellers, the musicians. These are the people that make a civilization amazing. And I might add, they're the last line in defense, I think, before tyranny, in my view. So uh, I'm Fantastic Negrito, and I approve this message. Thank you. Our final speaker. I met Marcus Thompson uh, sitting in a circle in the media center at San Quentin State Prison, where he was um, meeting with a group of journalists who are currently incarcerated uh, after having covered uh, for a story the annual basketball game between the uh, San Quentin Warriors and the Golden State Warriors. And so, so uh, Marcus does many things. He's a lead columnist for The Athletic. Uh, he is uh, the author of the best-selling biography, Golden, The Miraculous Rise of Steph Curry. Uh, and I think he really embodies um, this idea that sports and sports writing are about more than just the rules of the game and who wins and who loses. Sports have an incredible ability to bring people together and to change hearts and to change minds, and I think he does that. So I'm very pleased to have met him. Uh, please welcome to the stage, Marcus Thompson. I, I feel like... Uh... This is like the sequel to Love Jones. And I'm supposed to have a blues for Nina right now. Uh, I got some laws before I start, since this is Life of the Law podcast. Law number one, I have to put my Jordan on the speaker. <laughs> because when you wear Jordans, you kind of got to show them off. <laughs> law, law number two, do not judge me. I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm probably, I'm just a sports writer. I probably won't be as, you know, deep and thoughtful as the others. I'm a little, as uh, they will tell you, I'm a little crazy. So don't judge me. Uh, those are really only laws I go by. <laughs> we got other laws in the locker room, like don't, don't interview a player while he's naked. <laughs> you know, like always... Never, never give up your source. That's a law. All right, I'm, I'm digressing. So 
I really don't have a reason for being here other than they told me to come speak. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just going to do what I do and start with my journey, right? Uh, and somehow or another, if I say something that is worthwhile, then uh, they, don't, they, they aren't shamed, right? So funny, funny story. Uh, I, went to, I went to All Black College. I went to Clark Atlanta University. Uh, I grew up in Oakland. And I went to Oakland Tech, which was predominantly black, but pretty, pretty diverse. So when I went to Clark Atlanta, like for four years, like I didn't see white people. So it was, it was a trip to come back to the Bay Area and get a job. And my first assignment was uh, high school girls water polo. <laughs> for real, I'm not joking. At, I was at Monta Vista High School. What y'all mean? It was lit. Like, <laughs> I mean, I had a job. I was juice, you know. So I, I had a job. I was a high school reporter. It was, it was on, and uh, you know, I had my, I had my Jordans on, <laughs> at Monta Vista. So I walk in, and you know, I'm from Oakland, so I feel like I'm better than everybody. <laughs> so I'm up in Alamo, which I had never been, despite growing up in Oakland. I'm in Alamo, and it's a water polo game, and I'm watching the water polo game, and then the game ends, and then all of these girls get out of the pool, right, because the game is over, and I start freaking out because that's when it hit me, like, I was the only black dude writing about wet high school girls. <laughs> so I was like, yo, I'm going to jail. <laughs> like, literally freaking out, like, if... If somebody sees me, they're like, what is he doing here? Like, why is he here? So I'm freaking out, like, and then the coach is like, I interviewed the coach, and he's like, you want to talk to any of the girls? I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not talking to them. So, <laughs> I mean, I came from a black college, so, you know, they told me all the stuff about how, you know, you can't be around white girls. <laughs> So I'm freaking out after all this education comes to me, right? So I ended up covering high school basketball, uh, which was, you know, probably more in my wheelhouse. And I eventually got to cover the Warriors. And the, this, this is before the Warriors were the Warriors. This is when the Warriors were like the Bad News Bears, right? <laughs> when I was in Atlanta and I said I was a Warriors fan, people would say, oh, where do they play? Like, not even joking, that's a real story. <laughs> Where do they play? So, so I, I find myself, uh, like, I'm on this stage, and I don't know why. I find myself in these situations, like, you know, I'm, I'm a sports writer. Like, that's not really deep, right? <laughs> and I end up in these situations that are always real deep, but I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. So, <laughs> so really, I'm like, a middleman, because I'm, I, I often find myself in between these, these two worlds. Like, literally, I'm in, the wor I'm in between a world that is super relevant, right? It's unbelievable how, like, I'm, I'm, I'm eating with my wife and my daughter, and a waiter who's not serving us will come over and say, are you Marcus Thompson? And I look at my wife like, I told you I was a star, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I'm in a restaurant eating, and he's like, are you Marcus Thompson? It's, 
So it's super relevant. The Warriors are hot. But really, sometimes I sit and watch the games and I'm like, what the hell are we doing here? Like, basketball is kind of irrelevant. <laughs> right? So it's this world that really doesn't affect anything. It doesn't matter at all. And yet it matters so much. So I'm, I'm always like in the middle, like, should I go all in with the, like, we love it, everybody love it, let's enjoy it, or should I actually be doing something with my time, like, besides watching basketball, right? <laughs> so that's where I am. And so, you know, Nancy told me uh, she wanted me up here, and I've been trying to think of why she wants me here. And <laughs> so she was like, hey, man, you, you got to tell the journey, you're like, the perfect because you like from Oakland and you from the old school and now you're new school and she really didn't tell me like what I was here for but <laughs> but I was like all right let's roll with that so I'm thinking of all these stories uh like any of you guys remember dial-up internet <laughs> right so back when I when I was covering high school sports when you turned in a story like you had to plug a, like a literal phone line into the computer, right? And so I was covering a game at Laney. I think it might have been like, a, like the Silver Bowl or something like that, but it was late. And, you know, sports end at 10 o'clock and deadline is happening. That's the big thing, deadline, with journalists, especially late at night. Like the game ends at 10. If in three minutes I don't have a story in, like my phone is going off, right? So you got like 800 words in three minutes. Like get it done. So... I'm hustling, trying to find a phone line, and Laney, this back, you know, back when Oakland was Oakland, didn't have a phone <laughs> in the press box, right? So you gotta, so now you gotta try to find a phone because I gotta turn my story in, and I'm 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 going to all these places, and either nobody has a phone or nobody wants to let me use the phone, and I know they're not gonna let me use the phone because here comes a dude in Jordans. <laughs> with like this 84 Dell, talking about, hey, yo, man, can I use your phone line? I got to turn my story in. <laughs> like, if it were me, I'd be like, all right, y'all, if y'all going to rob me, just go ahead and take it. <laughs> like, I know this is a setup, right? So I'm like, nobody going to let me use the phone. It's not that much open. I find myself on Broadway. I got a very important part. I was, I'm a, I was a total church kid, right? I grew up in church. All my family went to church. So the one place that was open was the porn shop on Broadway. <laughs> Not even joking, porn shop on Broadway. I gotta get the story in, like, editors are going crazy, and it's one shop, so I'm like, this is the, mo this is the moment when Sister Johnson gonna walk by. <laughs> so I'm like, but I gotta get the story in, because I'm a journalist, and this is what we do. So I go inside of the porn shop, and I'm like, yo, can I use your, your phone line? I gotta turn my story in, I'm a reporter. Of course, in the porn. So they're like, absolutely. <laughs> sure, yeah, have, have what you want, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm plugging my phone in. I'm like trying to like, you know, I got my head down because I'm a good church boy. And <laughs> y'all know that dial-up, it starts like, <laughs> and it's just like, a, it's like a three-minute process, right? So I'm in here and I'm trying to keep my head down, right? And I'm like, no, but I'm in here just working. I'm not here for pleasure. I hope I don't see Sister Johnson them, right? Right, so after I finished looking at the ebony section, I came back. <laughs> so I came back, I turned my story in. And then I contrast that with now, right, where I literally write stories from my iPhone while I'm driving. 
It's like, seriously, like, I'm in the, or I'm flying, I'm in the airport, it's deadline, and I'm like, telling the steward, like, yo, yo, wait. Like, I got two more sentences to write. I'm about to send this. Or you get on Southwest and a, and a Wi-Fi, like, you got to connect to the Wi-Fi and pay the $8, and I don't need that two minutes because I got two minutes left. So you're trying to hurry up and get it in before the flight. It's like, how can I send my story from my phone when before I needed to stop in a porn shop to use, right? Like, when I was in Milwaukee, if you made the front page of the paper, I interned at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, worst three months of my life. <laughs> If you made the front page of the paper, they printed it out, put it in the frame for you, right? And now, if you write a dope article, you gotta like send links to people, all <laughs> right? Like I wrote, I wrote an article, this is the only reason I'm here, it's because I wrote an article about the Warriors going to San Quentin, right? And, I, and, and Nancy liked it, so then she brings me back to talk to them, and everybody's talking about this article, and so if you want the article, like, I wish I had a plaque, <laughs> but I don't because everything has changed, right? Uh, and the other, last week I was at this author's dinner in Berkeley. It's the Berkeley Library Foundation. They had an author's dinner and they had a bunch of authors there. And once again, I'm a sports writer and people are writing about like AIDS and women, and, right? Like all this like serious, real stuff. And then it's like the Steph Curry biographer. Right. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm up in there, and, and, and they start telling why, why do you have, like, why this is important. And they were talking about how they went to the library. And I was thinking, yo, I used to go to the library. Y'all remember the library? <laughs> like, for real, like, when I was in trouble, I had to go to the library to get a book. Because my grandma's like, get out the house. So you go to the library, right? That, that's how you had to do it. And when I was at Tech, and we, you know, we didn't have any money at all. So me and my friend, we, uh, like Burger King had to, you get two burgers and two fries for $2, right? So that's $2, five days a week, that's $10, right? So we each would bring $5 each for that week, and we would both eat with one burger and one fry each, right? So we had our little plan. But you know how hard it is to make $10 stretch for a whole week? So most times, we, we would come in and be like, hey, man, you got your $2? Like, nah. So we would just sit in the library together and, like, study. <laughs> we're like, you know, hey, we hungry. Hey, let's go to the library and study. And I'm thinking, like, <laughs> like, my daughter doesn't go to the library, right? So I wonder all the time about in, in, this, in this, like, search for efficiency, like what, what, what exactly is the cost? Like what do we lose? What are we missing? I used to walk from Sabrani Park, which is all the way down 150 East Oakland, to the East Oakland Youth Development Center on 82nd. Y'all, that's like 50 blocks in real time, right? <laughs> like if you told me to do that now, like, <laughs> like are you serious? Why would I even do that? I'd just call an Uber. But, like, for real, we used to walk to go get something to eat. Or if you happen to have $5, you would walk to 90th and MacArthur to the burrito truck, right, and get you a burrito. Like, that's what we did. And just tonight, I was like, should I caviar some Starbucks? <laughs> like, I really want some coffee, but I don't know when this thing is going to start. <laughs> 
So by the time I get to Starbucks, that's when it's going to start. Maybe I should just caviar a latte. (laughs) (laughs) Like, who are we and what are we doing, right? (laughs) This is me. Like, this is where I'm at the game. Everybody's going crazy for Steph Curry, and I'm sitting here thinking, like, what what, what are we doing here? And, and And I'm in the middle. And to make it, like, real, to get all, like, fantastic Negrito on you, Right, I live. I, I'm. I live in Oakland and West Oakland. When I was growing up, you didn't go to West Oakland because you was from East Oakland, right? You didn't do that. But I live in West Oakland, around the corner from Brown Sugar Kitchen. Uh, and they walk dogs and babies, right? <laughs> right? Like, I'm serious. Like, this is West Oakland. You know what I'm saying? Like, three blocks up, you can buy whatever whatever makes you high. But on our block, like, you got two Mercedes. One is in the in a lot with the condos, and one is on the sidewalk. And don't nobody touch it. Fantastic Negrito would have stole that back in the day. Now, now you could just park it on the street, right? And then I found out, I remembered, my cousin was murdered three blocks away from there. And then you start like, yo, it's crazy how being a sports writer has where, like where it has taken me, right? It's really insane because I spent all my childhood trying not to fall into that life, right? To make it, to go to college, do all that. Don't be like that. And I made it and I, I live like three blocks from where my cousin was killed. And now I'm wondering, did I even make it? Like what is making it, right? I made it and we're walking dogs and if my daughter if my daughter walks out past the gate like the police is getting called <laughs> like like no you don't walk outside the gate not without me <laughs> right this is I will drive you to the liquor store around the corner <laughs> right <laughs> right like like what what is making it and, and and how do we quantify that in the process of trying to be uh, uh, to, to advance, what was the cost? What did we leave behind? What about all my family members and friends who still in the hood and you don't walk dogs and babies on their block, right? Uh, that, that's the part that I wonder if being a sports writer is like what I should be doing because like I'm chilling, I'm playing, I'm watching basketball and there's real stuff happening. But in the end, like, I get paid to watch basketball, so who gives that up? <laughs> right? Like, I get to watch Steph Curry and, and Kevin Durant win a championship. And, and then there's a parade, right? <laughs> right? And when I'm eating at a restaurant, people know who I am. And people like Nancy put me on podcast shows where I probably shouldn't be here. But, <laughs> right? So... I just, I think about that a lot. What, and as we advance and we get so fancy and technologically savvy and we're so efficient, what are we losing? What, what is the cost? And if you don't think about that, maybe the cost is higher than what we thought. How was that, Nancy? Was that legit? All right. All righty. Those were our six incredible speakers. Please uh, give a big round of applause again for Marcus Thompson, 
Fantastic Negrito, Rudy Shaw, Troy Williams, Saran Norris, and Irene too. What's up, I'm, I'm interrupting this, this yeah, regularly scheduled program that. already in progress. Yeah. Are we still recording? Hopefully. Turn the mics on. Uh, I missed the call from Steph Curry fooling with y'all. <laughs> like. It's true. Hey. It's true. Hey. Y'all better click and retweet this like crazy. Steph, I'm about to call you back. Thank you, Marcus. Life of the Law likes bringing you these stories because stories change hearts and minds. Check us out, lifeofthelaw.org. Download the podcast, make a donation. Thank you again for coming, and that is our show, Live Law IPO. Thank you so much. Live Law San Francisco initial public offering took place before a live audience at the Polish Club in the Mission District on February 23rd. This episode was produced by myself and Tony Gannon. Our engineers were Katie McMurrin and Scott Steiner. We had production assistance from Andrea Hendrickson. Our social media editor is Rachel Kane. Music in this episode is by Max McKellar and Rick Wilkerson. There are so many people to thank for this episode. We want to start with our storytellers. Fantastic Negrito, Saran Norris, Riddy Shaw, Marcus Thompson, Irene Tu, and Troy Williams. We also want to thank the volunteers who made this night possible. Scott Steiner, Kalila Nelson, Sandy Fish, Andrew Germont, Nayeli Maxson, Poppy Deer, Brittany Bator, Kay Carter, Baxter Bansali, Steve Skellinger, Corinne Smith, Carlos Gonzalez, Amy Mustafa, Paul Galvin, Max McKellar, and Rick Wilkerson. You can hear each individual story presented at Live Law San Francisco by visiting our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also hear Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Life of the Law is dependent on your support to produce and publish all of the stories you hear, including our investigative reports, in-studio discussions, and live law stories like these. We hope you'll visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org. You can find the donate button on the top right hand of our homepage. Thank you for your donation. Next on Life of the Law. I first saw Gattaca when it came out 20 years ago, and I was very young and impressionable, and somehow, because of my own disability, I sensed a connection, but I couldn't put my finger on it. So it was kind of fascinating. I knew it spoke to me in some way, but I didn't understand how. I didn't have words for it. It was just a feeling. You know, I identified with the critique of a society that was trying to rid itself of people who were flawed. And that was very exciting. It was like, wow, a mainstream movie saying that the flawed people have power and something to give. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. <laughs>